The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Please remain standing. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7. Beginning in verse 1, remember as I read, this is the Word of God. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death is better than the day of, the birth, of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And then in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found one man among a thousand I found, but a woman, woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Father, for your word, we give you thanks once again. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, but we are in need of your guidance as we come to it. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the features of the book of Ecclesiastes is that the key theme, one of the key themes of the book is absent for much of the book. 
This is, in a sense, the theme that does not appear, that appears uh, significant by way of its absence. It's a little bit like that famous short story by Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the, the substance of which hinged on, on the dog that did not bark. There, there is a theme that, that does not emerge, but it exists in the background until chapter seven. And, and that theme is the theme of wisdom. Now, we know that Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. It's always been considered a wisdom book. The author, Solomon, is primarily known in a positive sense for his wisdom. And the book has been looked at as a source of wisdom. And the book, in fact, does mention wisdom early on, but it mentions it, in a sense, in passing. So, for instance, in chapter 1, the writer says, the preacher says, that he possesses great wisdom. In chapter 2, he reminds us that even as he explores uh, the value or lack of value in eating and drinking and feasting and partying, he says that in the midst of all this, he kept his wisdom. And he even says in 2.13 that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And then later in chapter 2, he says this in 2.26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting. But after that exploration of wisdom, in which the writer tells us that he has wisdom, that he kept his wisdom, and that God gives wisdom, wisdom disappears from the scene. We don't read about it in the book. We know it's significant. We know it's important. We know it's, in a sense, central. But it's not taken head on until chapter 7. But then when we reach chapter 7, you find that wisdom appears again and again throughout the chapter. Uh, Wisdom appears in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 12, in verse 19, in verse 23, in verse 25. And the appearance of wisdom on the scene, a description of wisdom, where it can be found, and, and some parameters which are to help us understand the limits of wisdom, are here in this chapter. Now, now you'll find commentaries that will say that this chapter is a kind of random or miscellaneous collection, particularly these first 13 verses. It sounds a little bit like the book of Proverbs. There are these, there are these proverbial two and three line sayings that don't initially seem to have any order to them. But, but however you organize these, however you understand them, uh, the fact of the matter is this, Wisdom makes an appearance in this chapter. In fact, wisdom takes center stage in this chapter. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher Solomon, answers several critical questions about wisdom. Now, I have to say this. We could take each of these verses and look at them in great detail. But I want to take a step back and look at the whole chapter and try to see what the writer is teaching us about wisdom in this chapter as he, as it were, pushes wisdom to the center stage again, puts the spotlight on wisdom. What does he say? Well, first, in this poetic section, in the first 13 verses, he answers a key question about wisdom, and that's this. Where do you find wisdom? Where is wisdom to be found? And conversely, we could look at the other side of that coin and ask the question, where do you not find wisdom? Where do some people think wisdom will be found? 
where they actually will find nothing but folly. So this is what he answers in these first 13 verses. And let's look at some of the places where wisdom is found. Where do you find this most valuable thing, this most valuable object of wisdom? Well, first, in the first six verses, he surprisingly tells us this, that wisdom is found in sorrow and in rebuke and even in death. And it's not found in laughter and in mirth. Now, this is counterintuitive for most of us because most of us spend the bulk of our lives, and indeed, our our culture tells us and encourages us in all kinds of ways to spend the bulk of our lives looking for the maximum happiness that we can find, trying to avoid pain, avoid difficulty, avoid any contact with the serious matters of life and death. And, And then, in fact, the object of the good life is to keep death and difficulty and mourning and pain as far away from us as possible for as long as possible, and to embrace the good life, which consists of laughter and mirth. But in the midst of that, what the writer of Ecclesiastes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us is that actually wisdom is to be found precisely in those places that our culture and our nature instinctively tells us to avoid. Look at what he says. He tells us, first of all, that a good name is is the ultimate thing. It is better than precious ointment. But the day of death, he then says, is better than the day of birth. He goes on to say it's better to be in the house of mourning than to be in the house of feasting because it reminds us of the reality of death. In verse 3, he says sorrow is actually better than laughter because the sadness of the face ultimately makes the heart glad. And and he summarizes what he's trying to say in verse 4. The heart of the wise, the wise man, the one who truly understands wisdom as it's exposed to us in Scripture, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, why is this the case? Why is it the case that the writer in these first four verses tells us that actually thinking about sorrow, dwelling in the place of mourning, is better for us than being in the house of feasting. Well, we could list a number of reasons why he might say this. He doesn't explain precisely why, but when we look to the rest of the scripture, we can see a number of reasons why this might be the case. First and foremost, considering questions of life and death is significant for all of us because it points us to those most ultimate issues that we face as human beings. If you go through life distracted, if you go through life trying to ignore the reality of death, then you never fully appreciate your need for someone to save you from death and to deal with this ultimate enemy of death that looms on the horizon for all human beings. This is why in Hebrews chapter 2, it tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ, our elder brother, took on human flesh and he, and he, in his work, destroyed the one who has the power over death and delivered us who were subject to the fear of death from lifelong slavery to that fear. That reality about the conquering of death in the Lord Jesus Christ is a reality that will rest very lightly on us if we're not reflecting on death itself. 
furthermore, I think it's the case, and we know it's the case, that actually the greatest lessons that we learn in life are learned through times of suffering and hardship. It's almost axiomatic if you look at your life. The times when you learned the most were the times when you were forced to learn the most, when you were stretched the hardest. This is true in mundane ways. It's true in your, in your studies, those, those, those classes, those books that stretch you intellectually that are most demanding end up also giving you the greatest return on your investment. And that's true in life as well, that those circumstances that the Lord places in your path, which are the most difficult, also build in you the greatest endurance. This is why James says, consider pure joy when you endure suffering of many kinds. We know this to be the case if we're trying to do something as mundane and superficial as learn a new skill or develop our ability in some kind of athletic endeavor or to lift more weight. You you have to strain yourself to do that. You have to stretch yourself to do that. And so it is with mourning and with wisdom. We grow through sorrow. We grow through difficulty. We grow through being in the house of mourning. Now, in addition, he says in verses 5 and 6, we grow through rebuke rather than through flattery. And again, this is something we tend to avoid. We often have certain people in our lives that we don't want to talk to about certain ideas or or certain experiences because we know that they're going to be critical. We know that they're going to have something to say. It's easier to live in this this sort of self-absorbed bubble in which you think that every idea that comes into your mind is a brilliant idea. And the ways you've handled things in the past are the right ways to have handled them. But that's not the path to biblical wisdom. The path to biblical wisdom involves having people in your life who care about you enough to rebuke you, to teach you, to give you instruction and direction as hard as that might be at the time. So here's what he says. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. It's easy today for us to surround ourselves, to put ourselves in an echo chamber in which we are surrounded by people who think the same way we do, who who cheer us on in our folly, and who never confront us on the things that matter. But far better to put ourselves in the path of the rebuke of the wise man. That's the path of wisdom. That's the path that makes us wise. The 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 laughter of fools is vanity. It's the crackling thorns underneath the pot. Now, in verses 7 and following in this same section, he addresses several other false paths to wisdom. He says quite simply in verse 7 that bribery doesn't bring wisdom. If you're being paid to hold a certain conviction, if you're being paid to say a certain thing, to come to a decision, not because you've arrived at it uh, through, through your own study and your own diligent and careful thought, but simply because it's what someone else wants you to say or do, and they're paying the bills, that's not the path of wisdom, he says. That's why he addresses bribery in verse 7. It corrupts the heart. It destroys and eats away at any discernment that the Bible enjoins us to pursue. 
Furthermore, in verses 8 through 10, he tells us that it's found in patience and not in anger or even in nostalgia. Wisdom doesn't come to you in a fit of rage. And wisdom doesn't come to you with this kind of looking back on the past with rose-colored glasses, which we can all be so prone to do. No, that's not the path of wisdom. That's a kind of escapism. Or or, or worse yet, when it comes to anger, a, a sinful rebellion against God's commands. But finally, he tells us this in this poetic section about where you find wisdom and where you do not find wisdom. In verses 11 through 13, there's a kind of reminder, a kind of disclaimer placed on the end of this poetic section. And the disclaimer essentially has to do with this fact that wisdom, while good, is no guarantee that all will go well for you. So the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us, pursue wisdom, and here's how. If you pursue these things, they won't lead you to wisdom, they'll lead you to folly. But just remember that even in the path of wisdom, even as you grow in wisdom, the reality is this, that wisdom, while it provides protection from you in life, provides no guarantee that everything will work out as you expect. And that provides the transition for the second half of the chapter. Because in the second half of the chapter, what the writer tells us is that wisdom itself has limitations. Wisdom has limitations in our own lives, and wisdom has limitations in the lives of others. And we need to be aware of those limitations, even as we pursue the path of finding wisdom that he outlines in the first 13 verses. So what are the limitations? I'll mention three, and I think these are the big three in the second half of this chapter. First of all, he echoes at the beginning of this second half what he's just said at the end of the poetic section in verses 1 through 13. That the wisdom will not necessarily lead to material prosperity or to success, although it does bring with it a kind of strength. This is really what he's getting at in verses 14 through 19. He describes the fact that there will be days of prosperity. There will be days of adversity, even for the wise man. And in the days of prosperity, be joyful. And in the days of adversity, recognize that God has given all of these to you, both kinds of days. He talks as well in verses 15 through 18 about a puzzling scenario. And this is the righteous man who perishes in righteousness and the wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. There are two, there are two points he's trying to make in this little scenario. The first is a repetition of what he says in verse, in verse 14, that there will be days of adversity sometimes, sometimes decades of adversity, even for the wise man, even for the righteous. But there's something else he's getting at here as well. And it comes in these puzzling words in verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, this is not an absolute statement about holding back in your pursuit of wisdom or even holding back in your pursuit of God's commands. Rather, what he's describing here and really enjoining us toward here is the, the, he's telling us that we need to be willing and ready to, to suffer wrong. We don't always have to get the last word. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. 
he's talking about the, the fact that the wise man recognizes that he doesn't have to solve every problem in the world. He doesn't have to always get in the last righteous word in every conversation. In fact, actually, sometimes the people who try to do that get themselves into needless trouble. So he's not saying don't pursue wisdom. He's not pulling back on what he said earlier. And he's certainly not saying in an absolute sense, don't be righteous or don't pay attention to righteousness. He's talking about the way in which this works out in our involvement with other people. Look, there are righteous men and there are wicked men. Sometimes the wicked prosper greatly. And the question is, how is it that we respond to this? And what the writer of Ecclesiastes says is we need to respond sometimes in a measured way. It may be the case that the wicked man appears to have all the success whether in life or even in ministry. But the reality is, it's not for us to be overly righteous or too wise in this sense, as if we can solve these problems. Don't be a fool, he says in verse 17. Why would you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. So let's say, in your pursuit of wisdom, you find yourself seeing the injustice in the world. Well, what the writer says is recognize that all of these circumstances come from God. They're not always yours to solve. In fact, trying to address all of them may get you into more trouble than it's worth. And so in verse 19, he says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in the city. The second point he makes about the limitations of wisdom in this second half of the chapter is that wisdom always exists in the context of human limitations. Both our human limitations, our, our inability to solve every problem, our, our own blind spots, and the limitations of others. This, this is what he means when he says in verse 20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, taken at face value, this is something that we'd all acknowledge is true. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in this context, what he's reminding us of is that no matter how diligent our pursuit of wisdom is, no matter how much we think we've understood wisdom and righteousness correctly, the reality is we ourselves have blind spots. We, we, we ourselves should should never say that we understand things completely and have no sin in in a matter because the reality is there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins we've all encountered people who are so certain that every perspective they have is driven by by a perfect analysis by a perfect understanding by a perfect appreciation and appropriation of the commands of god no, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, pursue wisdom, but do so with a degree of humility about your own state. Similarly, show humility about the estate of others. This is verses 21 and 22. Look, you're going to hear things that people will say, perhaps about you, perhaps careless words about other situations. And we need to give them the same benefit of the doubt that, or the same, the same level of uh, forgiveness, I should say, as we would give ourselves. 
Don't take to heart all the things that people say. You're going to hear them say things against you. But the reality is, you know uh, that if you're honest with yourself, you've said things about others that you wouldn't want them to hear. The third limitation comes in verses 23 through 29. And we could simply state it this way, that wisdom and the path of wisdom and the person of wisdom, the person who understands all these things in the correct proportion, the person who puts himself in the path of receiving wisdom and not embracing folly, this kind of person is exceptionally rare. He's holding up at the end of this chapter the significance of the wise man. There are all kinds of snares for the wise man. And in this case, he mentions the snare of this woman, this adulterous woman that we encounter in the book of Proverbs. But there are more snares than that. The point of all of it is that it's very rare to find someone with real wisdom, someone who really understands where wisdom is found and what the limitations of human wisdom are. Now, what are the implications of all of this? Well, I'll mention a few. The first implication is this. We've reached a point in the book where the writer is explicit about something we should go after. You can start reading through the book of Ecclesiastes and begin to wonder, does anything matter at all? I'm not, I'm not supposed to worry about uh, embracing riches. That won't get me anywhere. I, I embracing uh, the life of partying won't get me anywhere. Friends are things I, are ones I can't rely on. So what is it that actually is worth pursuing? Well, here you have something worth pursuing. He's already told us earlier in the book that wisdom is better than folly. But here he tells us the rare and great value of pursuing wisdom. You want to pursue something that matters in life? pursue wisdom. Proverbs puts it this way. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. In a sense, what the writer of Proverbs is saying, what Solomon is saying in Proverbs is similar to what Solomon is implying in Ecclesiastes 7. Whatever else you do, whatever else you go after in life, go after wisdom. It's going to repay its value to you over and over again. And it's far better than any of the normal pursuits which we're naturally drawn to in this life. Look at your life, your whole life, more like a school and less like a like a shopping trip. I had a, a, a man in, in the first congregation I served. He was in his 80s at the time, but he was extremely active. And he used to say over and over again, probably every time we'd meet for breakfast, something like this, every day is a school day. And what he meant by that was he was continuing to try to learn, learn from the scriptures, learn from other wise people, learn from the providences that God had brought into his life. And that's, I think, something that this chapter points us to. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Also, I would say this, this chapter reminds us that while we're supposed to get wisdom, this is worth pursuing. Recognize the limitations of yourself and of other people. Uh, You are going to be very prone, even in your pursuit of wisdom, to have blind spots. Recognize that ahead of time. Recognize and hold with a degree of humility, even the hard-won insights 
that the Lord has given to you, and particularly when it comes to others and their own uh, and their own loose words, even their own criticisms of you. Recognize that you have done the same thing yourself. I would I would also add this: when we move from Ecclesiastes seven to the New Testament teaching that we have, recognize that the Church of Jesus Christ is at the center of this pursuit of wisdom. Believers are supposed to exemplify God's wisdom, and believers are supposed to command to live wisely. This is not just language from the Old Testament. This is language from the New Testament. In in Ephesians 3, it talks about the way in which God has worked in the church, and it says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Paul commands believers to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And James says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. It's within the context of the church as God does his work through the church. And as we exist amidst the body of believers, that God both displays his wisdom and commands us to walk in wisdom. And we do this in the church and as individuals, in as much as we look to and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Bible tells us is the fount of all wisdom. We see his example of wisdom outlined for us in the Gospels. Luke 2 says the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. And in Luke 11, uh, there's this wonderful picture drawing from the Old Testament wisdom texts where Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to behold the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You look at and read about Jesus Christ in the gospels and what you see is the embodiment of wisdom, the exemplification of real wisdom. And of course, his person itself is the embodiment of wisdom. We see that in the Old Testament in Proverbs 8, this wonderful messianic passage, the the most quoted messianic passage related to the, the, uh, the incarnation of Jesus in the early church. But we also see it in the New Testament as Paul talks about Jesus' work within the church. And he says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Wisdom can never be abstracted in our minds from the pursuit and the focus on the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one at work in his church to display the wisdom of God, and and he is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. He, he, He comes to us as the wisdom of God, and it's as we come to know him that we grow in wisdom as he himself in his incarnation grew in wisdom. This is why the Apostle Paul, when referring to Christ in Colossians 2, says, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as we think about our lives, as we think about our priorities, as we think about 
what it is that God calls us to pursue in life. That, that might take the form of many different kinds of vocations in many different locations in the world. But one thing is clear in the scriptures. We are to be people who pursue wisdom. And what that means is people who, who hold up and who reflect upon uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the one who, who came and, and offered himself for us, but becomes for those who are in him the wisdom and the manifold riches of our great God. Well, let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for this clear teaching, this instruction from your word. We need these reminders, and we need your spirit to work in us, to drive these things deep into our hearts, cause us to grow in wisdom and grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, and we ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.